Hi, welcome to FizzGig. I'm Wendy Althwaite, and I admit to being fascinated by fizz, the taste, the tingle, and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular, or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod every Friday, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, while not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your googie bag as a little fact to take away. So here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today we're going to have a look at how bubbles are traditionally born. As you know, wine is just grape juice that's fermented with yeast. Sometimes the yeast creates bubbles. They happen naturally and usually accidentally, and historically they were seen as a fault. In fact, the ancient Greeks and Romans believed that evil spirits or the phases of the moon made bubbles, and they were a bad thing. Depending on the translation, some versions of the Bible even warn against bubbly wine. Look not thou upon wine when it's red, when it sparkleth in the cup, when it goeth down smoothly, which, let's face it, pretty well covers any wine worth drinking. In fact, bubbles form like this. Sometimes the wine is fermenting away merrily when it stops, usually because it's too cold, which is often when winter comes. The yeast just becomes dormant. Then when it warms up, provided there's enough sugar left in the wine for the yeast to feast on, it comes out of hibernation and starts re-fermenting. This is secondary fermentation. Now, as it ferments, yeast gives off alcohol and carbon dioxide, potential bubbles. If the wine's in a wooden barrel or an open tank, the carbon dioxide simply escapes into the air like our breath. But if the wine's in an impermeable container, like a glass bottle, the carbon dioxide is trapped and so has to dissolve into the wine and form bubbles about 49 million of them in each bottle. And there you have it, sparkling wine. And bubbly wine has a close link with England. The English sometimes had accidental bubbles in their wine. In the 17th century, England was not a wine-growing country, so wine had to be imported in wooden casks, often from our nearest neighbour, France. And northern France, where champagne is found, is the nearest neighbouring bit. After harvest, it takes a few weeks to ferment the wine, and we're then into winter. The wines were shipped to England, and once offloaded, the wine would either be bottled in the great wine trade centres of London, Bristol or Leith, or by the individual vintners and innkeepers themselves. And sometimes, these chilly young wines contain dormant yeasts. Once spring arrived, and the weather warmed up, you guessed it, the yeast would reawaken, re-ferment, and if the wine had already been bottled, the carbon dioxide would be trapped in the bottled wine, making it bubbly, 
it was a happy accident. And some customers loved these bubbles and demanded more. And like so many delicious temptations, it all started with an apple. By the 17th century, with an abundance of English apples, naturally cider was a big hit in the 1600s. Fizzy cider was even more popular. As we've already seen, fizzy cider could happen accidentally if the yeast spontaneously re-fermented, but this depended on there being enough sugar left in the apple juice to feed the yeast when they woke up. It was a bit hit and miss. This leave-it-to-chance method came to be known as the ancestral method, and we'll talk about that later. But the real question was, how could you guarantee bubbles? And the answer is simple, by adding sugar at bottling. English cider makers already knew that if a little sugar was added to cider at bottling, it provided a yeast feast that jump-started re-fermentation. Fizzy cider could be made on demand. So in 1657, incongruously when the chief killjoy Oliver Cromwell was in power, fizz was born. Rafe Austin wrote a book entitled The Treatise on Fruit Trees and Spiritual Use of an Orchard, which doesn't sound that interesting, but it is. He recommended that a lump of two of hard sugar should be added to each bottle of cider. The vintners copied the cider makers. On the 17th of December 1662, Dr Christopher Merritt, the parliamentary proctor of Oxford University, told the Royal Society, Our wine coopers of recent times use vast quantities of sugar and molasses to all sorts of wine to make them brisk and sparkling. Sparkling wine had arrived. There were refinements. Reverend John Beale suggested a walnut of sugar, whereas Captain Silas Taylor recommended a nutmeg of sugar. Chilling fizz was also recognised as being important. It makes it drink quick and lively. It comes into the glass not pale or troubled, but bright yellow, with a speeding, vanishing nittiness, as the vintners call it, which evaporates with a sparkling and whizzing noise. So it's pretty clear that by 1662, if not before, English cider makers knew how to make cider bubbly by adding sugar at bottling. Their technology had been copied by vintners and perry makers, and this is what we call the traditional method. And it was the English who invented it. But the trouble with bubbles is that you need to keep them in the bottle. At that time, the bottle stopper was a wooden peg wrapped in a cloth and tied onto the bottle with string. It was not very effective and invariably leaked. Also, the pressure of the bubbles, about three times that of a car tyre, would pop off the bottle stopper and the bubbles would be lost. The Romans had used corker stoppers and brought them to the parts of the world they conquered, but both the English and the French had forgotten about it. But bubbles prompted a cork revival. In 1657, Rafe Austin, again, explained that cider might be kept perfect for a good many years by keeping the bottles well stopped with corks and hard wax melted thereon and bound down with a pack thread. Between 1628 and 1632, Lord Scudamore, who perhaps significantly 
was later Charles I's ambassador to France. And Sir Kenham Digby also experimented with corks and concluded that a bottle firmly sealed with a non-leaking cork allowed sparkling wine to be kept for much longer. By 1675, the use of corks as stoppers was so widespread that even Shakespeare refers to it. Rosalind says to Celia in As You Like It, I pray thee, take thy cork out of thy mouth, that I may drink thy tidings. By the way, corks are cylindrical when they go into the bottle, and they get a little waste and flange out over time from the pressure of the bottleneck. When they get really old, and especially if they dry out, they become more like a peg. The shape of the cork can tell you how recently your fizz was disgorged. So take a look next time. But if the bubbles were in the bottle, there was another problem. Pressure. Bottles simply exploded. We're talking about the same pressure as a double-decker bus tyre in a bottle of fizz. It's a small bomb. Exploding bottles was such a problem that in 1689 the diarist, Madame de Sévigny, described sparkling wine as le vin du diable, the devil's wine. This was why cellar masters did everything they could to avoid the fault of bubbles in wine, to prevent bottle burst. Even as late as the 18th century, the French cellar workers involved in producing sparkling wine would wear a heavy iron mask to protect their face and neck, and it's thought that this was the inspiration behind Alexandre Dumas' novel, The Man in the Iron Mask. But as so often happens, a technological breakthrough unintentionally solved the problem. Let's go back a bit. At the start of the 17th century, James I needed warships to protect England from the threatened invasion. Warships needed masts. Masts came from oaks, and oaks of the right size and shape. One of James I's admirals, Sir Robert Mansell, worried that English oaks were being burned by irresponsible charcoal burners. So in 1615, Sir Robert Mansell persuaded James I to ban the burn. Mansell's actions were not entirely selfless. First, in the years that followed, Mansell, who conveniently was treasurer of the navy, sold oaks to the navy for double the earlier price. Secondly, Mansell commissioned foreign glassmakers to experiment with two different fuels, oil shale at Kimmeridge and Dorset and coal in the Forest of Dean. They found that hotter temperatures from coal fires made stronger glass. So in 1623, Mansell secured a royal patent giving him a monopoly over all coal-fired glassware and he set up factories in London, the Isle of Purbeck, Milford Haven, the Trent Valley and Newcastle-on-Tyne. He wanted to colour the glass to be able to identify it and to protect his monopoly. And by a stroke of luck, by adding iron and manganese ores to colour it, they unintentionally reinforced the glass, making it even stronger. Strong enough, in fact, to withstand the pressure of bubbles. Better bottles, better bubbles. This super-strong English glass was used for about a century in England before being used in France, and the French call it verre anglais, English glass. So, is champagne the parvenu? 
I'm afraid so. First, there is the myth of Dom Perignon. It goes like this. In 1688, Dom Pierre Perignon, a blind Benedictine monk, became the chief treasurer and cellar master of Audevillard Abbey, close to Reims, in the Champagne region of France. Legend has it that on the 4th of August 1693, Dom Perignon tasted a bottle that had become fizzy by the ancestral method, you remember that, where it accidentally has secondary fermentation in the bottle. He's reported to have sipped the fizz and called out, Come, brothers, I am tasting stars. Champagne, as we know it, was born. Except that it wasn't. The myth persists, though. Many Champenois are astonished and a little affronted by the suggestion that sparkling wine was first intentionally created somewhere else. It prompts a Gallic shrug before they point out that a statue of Dom Perignon stands proudly outside Moet et Chandon, and Dom Perignon is the name of a popular champagne. Both those things are definitely true. But we know that the Dom Perignon myth cannot be true. And by the way, he wasn't partially cited either. So first there's the chronology. Dom Perignon did not arrive at Audevillard, where he's supposed to have created champagne, until 1668, and is not supposed to have made champagne until 1693. But the English were making fizz by the latest at 1662, that is, over 30 years earlier. Secondly, Dom Perignon was not interested in fizz. He wanted to make a better still red wine. When Dom Perignon began at Audevillard, the Abbey produced an embarrassingly indifferent pale red wine, which compared unfavourably to Burgundy. And obviously it was important that the King of France would have better wine than the Duke of Burgundy. Dom Perignon's real triumph was the dramatic improvement of the wine by better viticulture and by blending grapes at the press. He was striving to make a better existing wine, not to create some new category. He expressly tried to avoid bubbles because it made the bottles explode. In time, Louis XIV, the Sun King, declared Dom Perignon's red wine as the finest in France. And I'm sure it was, but none of it was bubbly. It is striking that there's no contemporaneous evidence to support Dom Perignon's connection with fizz, particularly as Dom Perignon's successor, the most wonderfully named Champenois, Frère Pierre, wrote about Dom Perignon's work in a treaty on the culture of the vines of Champagne. He meticulously documents the improvements for still red wine production, but there's nothing about promoting bubbles in wine and nothing about adding sugar at bottling, the very crucial thing. All the contemporaneous sales records show that Dom Perignon's wine was sold by the barrel, so no bubbles there. And none of the sales records refer to a wine being mousseux, fizzy. He just didn't make it. In fact, the first suggestion that Dom Perignon created sparkling wine came from Don Grossard, and that was over a century after Dom Perignon had died. So why have we all heard about the story of Dom Perignon? Well, in 1889, 
the marketing committee of the Négociants of Champagne, who are a group of creative Champenois, declared Dom Pérignon to be the father of Champagne and just made up the invention myth. It was no more than a PR stunt by the Champagne marketing department. The documentary evidence about sparkling champagne is interesting. The first reference is in an English document, not a French one. It's in Sir George Etheridge's restoration comedy, The Man of Mode, or Sir Fopling Flutter, of 1676. He writes, To the mall and the park, where we love till tis dark, then sparkling champagne puts an end to their reign. It quickly recovers poor languishing lovers. This is, of course, a reference to champagne, a still red wine, which had been imported in barrels, had sugar added at bottling, and had been made fizzy by the English. In contrast, the first French document to mention sparkling champagne was written in 1718, 42 years later. It refers to champagne's emergence only 20 years earlier, that is in 1698, a full 30 years after the English had been making traditional method fizz. And finally, if Ruinard is, as it claims, the oldest champagne house, it was only established in 1729, 67 years after the English were making fizz. So the Champenois could not have been there first. And then there are the practical considerations. As we've already discussed, the French did not have strong enough glass to withstand the internal pressure of sparkling wine. That is, until they imported Vert Anglais in 1695, 33 years after the English were making traditional method fizz. And they only started using cork again in 1685. No cork, no bubbles. I promised we'd come back to the ancestral method. And this is also known as the rural method or Pet nat, pétillon naturel. Truth is, when sparkling wine was first produced in Champagne, it was made in a completely different way. You remember the hit and miss method of bottling the wine before it had fully fermented and just hoping that the yeast would re-ferment when the weather got warmer? Well, that's how they made Champagne. If there was enough sugar left in the unfermented grape juice, you'd get bubbles. But if there wasn't, you didn't. It was just a matter of luck. And in fact, the Champenois were not even the first to make sparkling wine in this way, even in France. Blanquette de Limoux was made by monks in the ancestral method from 1531, and they were close to the cork forests, and so they were able to seal the bottles properly. The crucial distinction between the ancestral or rural method and our traditional method is the addition of sugar at bottling. This is what guarantees bubbles. Ironically, the traditional method is now known as the Méthode Champenoise, even though the Champenois did not start doing this until the 19th century, about 200 years after the English. In spite of this, it's illegal for the English to describe their wines as being made by the Méthode Champenoise. Instead, they have to call it the traditional method, so as not to suggest it's a champagne. Interestingly, recently, pet gnats have had a little bit of a revival. Typically, they're gently fizzy, because there's not a lot of sugar left in the grape juice, and a bit cloudy, because all the dead yeast is floating about in the wine. But they can be delicious, and if you get the chance, do try one. 
so I don't want to kick a monk when he's down. But all things considered, Don Perignon did not invent sparkling wine. And I ought to add here that there are lots of other ways these days of getting bubbles into wine. Heston Blumenthal, for example, tried a soda stream, but we'll leave those for another day. So anyone for pudding? You may be wondering why this podcast is called Fizzgig. Obviously, its first syllable is fizz, appropriate for a podcast on sparkling wine, but it's a little more interesting. The archaic meaning of fizzgig is a prattling woman, and, as you may have noticed, I'm a woman. In modern times, fizzgig means a firework which fizzes as it erupts. A friend of mine unkindly suggested well, that was the same as a damp squib, but that's a firework that doesn't go off at all and just sputters. A fizzgig is a magnificent firework with added sound effects. So there we have it, Fizzerati. This brings us to the end of our time with Dom Perignon and the unacknowledged accomplishments of English vintners. We now know how bubbles are traditionally born. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next Friday when we'll be looking through a glass sparkly. May your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin. <laughs>